You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Most of the time, when we talk about salvation and salvation by grace through faith, we have in mind the point of conversion, the day we got saved. And different people experience that different ways. Maybe we went down front after a church service. Maybe we were at a youth camp. Maybe it was a revival or something. Or maybe a a parent shared the gospel with us and and the Spirit of God worked on that in a new way and Jesus did a new work in our lives and brought us into union with Himself. And we celebrate that and it's crucial and it's glorious and it's beautiful. And most of us, when we think about salvation, that's where our minds go, isn't it? The moment of freedom. That is good, it is right, it is to be celebrated, but it's not all. It's not even the goal or the end of Christ's work for us. When we come to the scriptures, we discover that salvation is not simply a moment, it's a process. And when we look at the scriptures, we find that the language of salvation happens in the past tense, like we frequently use it, but it also happens in the present tense, and it even happens frequently in the future tense. A few examples. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Which tense are we talking about here? Past tense. But then we get to 1 Corinthians 15, 2, and Paul's talking about the gospel, and he says the gospel is that through which also you are being saved. Now, I don't remember the last time somebody came up to me and said, you know, I'm being saved. It's just not the way that, like, syntactically we put things together, is it? Yet it's very biblical language, and that's only one example amongst many. Perhaps even more surprisingly for us is language that shows up in the future tense, like Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, much more surely then, now that we have been justified by His blood, there's the past tense thing, right? Justification, we spent a lot of time last week digging in deeply to that, the the forgiveness, God finding in our favor, God saying "You're, you're not guilty, your sins are forgiven, you're made a part of my family. Paul says, now that that's a reality, we've been justified by faith, the consequence, the result, how much more surely then, now that we've been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from the wrath of God? Sounds like that hasn't happened yet, doesn't it? Verse 10, For if while we were enemies... Past tense, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Past tense, how much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? Future tense. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, believers who have received the Spirit, are said to groan inwardly while we wait 
for adoption. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the language of being adopted into God's family, which tense do we use that in? Past tense. We are children of God. We've been received into his family, and that's true and that's right, but we need to pay attention to the way the Bible uses its language, and there's a sense for Paul in which that anticipates a future thing, something that's still coming, some fullness that hasn't happened yet. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. In hope we were saved. And so for Paul, you get a sense that salvation is, is, is crucially connected to that moment of justification. That's a big deal for him. He devotes his letters to talking about God's justification, how our sins are forgiven, how he accepts us, not for our own worth, not for our own merit, but through the merit and worth and grace and love of Jesus alone. Amen? He does that. He, he gives a lot of space to it in Romans and in Galatians and in Ephesians, and it's there and it's under his theology. But for Paul, that is an instrument, not an end. It is a means to another end. It's important, but it's one step, one stage in a larger process of God's purposes for us, in a larger process of salvation that includes our forgiveness, but is not limited to it, that includes our justification, but goes far beyond it. Because God's purposes for us is not mere forgiveness. God's purposes for us is, are not mere forgiveness, it's transformation. And yes, if He's going to have people who embody His character, who bear His image well, He has to forgive our sins, doesn't He? You can't have unforgiven people running around embodying the character of God. That makes no sense whatsoever. And so Paul's language of salvation is past, present, and future. And it's really aimed, as we read in Romans 8, at the redemption of our bodies. Paul has in mind, same thing he has in mind in 1 Corinthians 15 and other places, the day when Christ returns and the dead are raised, 1 Thessalonians 4, imperishable. Bodies come out of the ground. What was once decaying is now made whole. That's coming. Jesus will return and our bodies will be redeemed and creation will be made new and flooded with the presence and the glory and the beauty of God. It's not here yet. But for Paul, that's the climax of our salvation. So we've been saved in the sense that we've been received into God's presence. We've been forgiven. We've been reconciled to Him having been reconciled to God. And we're being saved, aren't we? Because <laughs> there's still issues. You got issues? Amen? There's issues. There's things that Jesus needs to work on. They show up. They got to be dealt with. There's even, even in all likelihood, just going from experience here, that there's issues that are going to come up later in a few years. We don't even know about them yet. But they're there. They got to be dealt with. And one day when Christ comes... He'll raise our dead bodies from the grave to participate fully in his resurrection. 
Now, the danger is we don't keep those stages of grace in mind. The danger is a truncated, limited, small vision of Christ's work in and for us. Anybody want a small vision of Christ's work? I'm glad you're paying attention. Every now and then I'll do those negative questions and somebody will raise their hand. And then they realize, wait a second, not supposed to raise my hand on that one, but it's good. We're past nine, you're, you're awake, it's all good. We don't want a truncated vision of the gospel. We don't want a truncated Jesus. We don't want a small God. Our God is big. He's infinite. He's limitless. And our vision of Him needs to be progressively and continually enlarged to see Him more and more and more for who who He truly is. And so the danger for us, if we limit the way we talk about salvation to a single point that may have happened to us 40 years ago. Like, do you want the most important thing in your life to be something that happened 40 years ago? All downhill from there, buddy. Like, don't you want Jesus doing crucial, important, massive things today? Tomorrow? What if the most important thing is yet to come? It is. It's resurrection of the dead, by the way. But even now, Jesus is eager to do something in His people that far outshines anything He's ever done before. He's not a one-and-done kind of guy. Hey, that was great. Welcome to the family. Catch you in heaven. That's not our God. It's not what He's like. And we are in danger if we don't take into account the whole counsel of Scripture and the full biblical way of talking about grace and salvation and all of these things. We're in danger of having a very limited vision of what God wants to do in us and through us. If you want a limited vision of God, by all means, have it. It's not what we're going to get here, though. It's not where we're going to dwell. We will not be satisfied with a small God. That's an amen kind of thing. Let me say it one more time. We will not be satisfied with a small God. Amen. The normal Christian life, brothers and sisters, is the transformed Christian life. Normal means transformed. Normal means growing. Normal means holiness. The normal Christian life is not a life that says, my sins are forgiven, but I can't help my problems. The normal Christian life is not a life that says, my sins are forgiven, but my sin is excusable. The normal Christian life, this is the bottom line today, is the transformed Christian life. Take a look at a little context. We're going to talk about Romans 6. But if we go back to Romans 5, we get, a, we, get a, we, get a, we get a feel for how Paul thinks. The opening chapters of Romans are focused on the reality of human sin. Everybody. Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews. Everybody stands condemned before God. Everyone has broken God's law. Everyone has sinned. We don't like talking about that. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? Reality is often difficult to face. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned. And yet, God in His mercy has forgiven us. Romans 3 and 4. God has taken sinners 
and forgiven us. He has taken enemies and reconciled us. Not to stop there, but for further purposes. And you see this. Romans 1 through 4 are about sin and forgiveness. Romans 5 through 8 are about holiness and resurrection. And the crucial kind of connection point comes in Romans chapter 5 with that word that every basic Bible study tells you to look for. Therefore. Therefore. All the stuff in the past is the foundation for what's about to come forward. Everything in the past is the instrument for what God is ready to achieve. Sinners have been forgiven. Therefore, something else is coming. Not sinners have been forgiven. Okay, end of the letter, ready to go home. We're only in chapter 4. 25% of the way through. The longest letter in the New Testament. Longest letter in Paul's part of the New Testament. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. So there's the grace language. And we boast in our hope, there's the future orientation, of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that He has given to us. You see how this works. We've been reconciled to Him. And now we walk through life filled with the perfect love of His Holy Spirit, recipients of that perfect love, which enables us to endure in suffering. Had any of that? Which enables us to endure in suffering for the purpose of what? Do you remember? Producing character. The normal Christian life is the transformed Christian life. And the transformation is from self-oriented sinner to Jesus, mission, world, neighbor-oriented, transformed Christian. So you can see how Romans 5 links everything that came before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we've been justified by His grace as a gift. Therefore, It's time for transformed character. Forgiveness isn't the end. It's the means to the end of holiness. So what does holiness look like? That's the topic of Romans 6. And Paul starts with a counterintuitive question. Well, the question isn't counterintuitive. The answer for us is often counterintuitive. What shall we say? Paul is a huge fan of rhetorical questions. If you're one of those people, Paul's your apostle. If you're one of those people who ask kind of snarky rhetorical questions that everybody knows the answer to already and we kind of get tired of you from time to time because you do that sort of thing too much, Paul is your guy. He's always throwing out the rhetorical questions and we know we're supposed to know the answer and nobody likes the answers, but he's the king of rhetorical, the apostle of the rhetorical question. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And American Christianity says, what else are we going to do? We're human after all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul. We're sinners. We can't help ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Paul's answer 
is 180 degrees in the other direction. And it's not just like, oh, you know, think about another option. It's not just like, well, that's possible, but let's try to like expand our horizons. He just says that's wrong, straight up, no questions asked. Three words, two in the Greek, by no means. You could translate it, absolutely not. Like whatever the most energetic way you've ever said no in your life, don't share that with us right now, but whatever the most energetic way you've said no to someone in your life, that's how you render the Greek here. No, absolutely not. No way, no how, no none, no. And you can feel the Romans are probably reeling like we are because they're thinking, wait a second, I thought, like, you've already said, Paul, everybody's a sinner. You've already given us that most famous verse in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Any alls in the room? Yeah, right here. We're sinners. And so that's our life. That's who we are. We're going to sin and God's going to forgive. And that's a pretty good deal because I kind of like my sin. It's rather enjoyable most of the time. And I can sin some more and God can forgive some more and I can sin some more and God can do the grace thing some more. And everybody's happy because everybody gets to do what they want to do. And Paul says, if that's your approach, you have no idea why Jesus died. None. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we just keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? Paul's answer is absolutely not. Not just absolutely not, but you get one of these, another <laughs> rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Are we supposed to experience transformation? Are we supposed to be changed? How can we who died to sin go on living in it? And so we have to deal with the problem of sin in the Christian life. And that's what this chapter is about. It's what Romans 6 is about. Paul goes on to say, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Here's the process. Here's the answer to the question. Believers are not to continue in sin because they've been joined to Jesus. Believers are not to continue in unrepentant, indulgent sin because we have been joined to Christ in His death. That's Paul's perspective. That's where he stands. So union with Christ, baptismal union with Christ, Jesus coming and saying, I'm taking a hold of you now and joining you to myself and sharing everything that's mine. I'm sharing that with you. That union means your life changes. Before, you were a slave to sin. Now, no longer. Jesus' desire for his people is transformation. You get, again, a sense of how forgiveness, justification, conversion, all of those are a means to another end. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? 
died to sin is the moment of conversion. That means life is different now. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You've been joined to Jesus? That means things are different now. Union with Christ, brothers and sisters, comes with implications. It means that everything changes. And Paul's going to flesh this out for us a bit in verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, and he's got the crucifixion of Jesus in mind, doesn't he? He's got the death of Christ for our sins. But the death of Christ just, it doesn't merely purchase forgiveness, does it? Somehow, when Jesus gives us union with him, he brings us to himself in his death. And this is helpful. I mean, it's kind of that, it sounds a lot like when Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be my follower, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. There's this shared participation. Jesus says, this is my vocation. I want to bring you into my vocation. This is my posture. I want to bring you into my posture. This is my life. I'm going to integrate you into my life, my death and my life. So if we've been united with him in a death like his, and we have, I mean, all of us want to insist on that, don't we? I mean, if we're believers, if we're in Christ, we, want, we participate in his death. That's the gospel. All the benefits of his death, all the forgiveness, washed clean by his blood, is counted for us. We've been joined to him in his death. Paul says that has implications for the future. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, we haven't got that yet. <laughs> Remember, that's the thing we're waiting on. Romans 8, the redemption of our bodies comes later. Jesus comes back, raises the dead, redeems our bodies, and all creation is set free from its bondage to decay. That's coming. So you got this past event joined with Christ in his death, and he's been raised, Jesus' death and resurrection, and that pattern plays out in our lives if we've been joined to him. We've been joined to him in his death. Mysteriously, beautifully, sacramentally, covenantally. We've been joined to him in his death. And if we participate in him, if all in him is mine, even the things that I'm not visibly, tangibly participating in yet, I will, and we have certainty about that. If he's joined us in his death and he's been raised from the dead, he will, you will participate in his resurrection at the day of his coming. It's certainty. So you got this past event, Jesus' death and resurrection. You've been joined to his death and that changes your future. Your salvation will be brought to its fullness at, his resurrection, at your resurrection when he comes. That's not all. Verse 6, we know that our old self, right? We talk about the old self the old man, the old person, crucified with him. And so when Jesus' body is nailed to the cross, everyone who has been joined to him, all of those who are covenantally united with him, who the Spirit of God has applied the benefits of his death, all of us participate with him in that. Whatever is true of him is true of us. Our old self was crucified with him 
so that the body of sin might be destroyed. Now, what is this body of sin thing? When Paul talks about the body of sin, he's talking about the body in slavery to sin. We know that because in a little while he's going to say, you're not slaves to sin anymore. You still have bodies, and he's got some expectation for your body. His expectations for your body may be a little different than your expectations for your body. It's a time for some expectation adjustment, isn't it? We still have bodies. It's just bodies aren't slaves to sin anymore. So you've got the body that is captive. You've got the body that is complicit. You've got the body that is given to sin. And, G- and Paul says, when Jesus died, if you belong to Jesus, your participation in sin has been severed and your participation in Christ has been created. And the old self has been nailed to the cross. And the body that's a slave to sin is dead. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that for this purpose the body enslaved to sin might be destroyed and we might no longer, guess what, be enslaved to sin. Like He's answering his own question. He's, answer, he's giving us the meaning of the text. The body of sin is the body enslaved to sin. Believer, you are not a slave to sin. You are not a slave. Jesus died and shares his death with you because whoever has died, verse 7, is free. Whoever has died is freed from sin. So if Jesus has died, sin has no power over him. When we remember his temptation, he goes into the wilderness, and that's a legit deal. It's not like Jesus is just kind of walking around being God all over the place, and the devil's like, hey, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm good, I'm God. No temptation here. He's, he's really tempted. He participates in our humanity. We're told in Hebrews he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. That's not the situation we have now. That was the situation then. That was the situation when Peter walked up and said, hey, you know what? This whole like death by crucifixion thing, let's not do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You're thinking like a man and not like God. There's a real moment of temptation there. The the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is literally, like, it looks like he's sweating blood because he's so stressed out that the little bitty capillaries in your forehead, you can get to such a level of stress that they break and, like, blood comes out of your face. It's freaky, isn't it? That's stress. That's temptation. That's not the situation anymore. Christ has died. And whoever has died is freed from any power or potential power that sin and death hold over him. And the resurrected Jesus lives his life to his Father, our God. If we have died with Christ, we believe we will live with Him, right? Again, future resurrection. We've died. We will live. We'll be raised. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion. There's that old word that shows up in the Bible sometimes. It means authority. It means power. Death has no power over the resurrected Jesus. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. He will not die again. He reigns now. He lives now. He is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. He's not, uh, and this is, remember this, like resurrected body Jesus reigns in heaven there's a human body sitting at the right hand of god the father almighty there is a human being who has died who has been raised who has been exalted and the death he died he died to sin once for all and he has joined you to himself the life he lives he lives to god and paul's answer for that is so that we right now can walk in newness of life kind of interesting he talks about newness instead of just new life why not just new not new life paul why newness of life because resurrection is new life and that's coming right now we anticipate that with newness kind of like that but we're still waiting for completion we're still waiting for fullness jesus did all that so that we can walk in newness of life not not have occasional really good days. Feeling pretty like it's been a good day. The Lord's been kind and I haven't, you know, mouthed off at my kids or shouted at my coworkers or something like that. It'll be another three months before I have a good day, but Jesus died so I could have occasional good days, right? No. Jesus died so that you could walk. Moment by moment, day by day, in newness of life. The normal Christian life, the walking Christian life, the daily Christian life, the normal Christian life is the transformed life. It's not Jesus bled and suffered and died so that you could occasionally resist temptation. And and he has low expectations. And you might as well just give in to your temptation and sin because, eh, what you going to do? It sounds ridiculous, but it's really where a lot of us live, isn't it? He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. That's the work of grace, that's the stage of grace. Where Jesus, having drawn us before our conversion, having united us to him at our conversion and justified us and forgiven us, having done all of that, now takes us ever more deeply into his life. Ever more deeply into his character. It's always further into Jesus. It's always further up into Jesus. It's always more. He never runs out. He is inexhaustible. He is infinite in His capacity to bring us more deeply into His life. It never stops. And it will never stop. That doesn't mean we live in sin now. It means the Christian life is marked and characterized by this continual growth into Jesus at deeper and deeper and deeper levels of experience continually
I know you probably have some questions about that. Does that mean that if I sin, I'm not a Christian? Does that mean that I, like, if I sin, I'm backsliding? Does that mean that I'm supposed to be perfect and like, like never have a thought that, I, that is sinful or never say something? Like, like, preacher, that bar is too high! That's how it feels, doesn't it? And here's what I want to say. The point is not an unreachable goal. The point is, right now, in this moment, does Jesus have all of me? Is everything in my heart yes to Jesus, no matter what he asks for? I may make mistakes. I may forget your name after the service, and you'll feel bad because the preacher didn't remember your name. And that's a mistake. And it's a weakness, and it's a frailty. But it's not rebellion, is it? I may have infirmities, and I may have weaknesses, and I may make mistakes, and I have lim- we have limitations. We know that we're not going to get everything perfectly right all the time, but that doesn't mean that my heart can't be yes to Jesus. Like I can make a mistake, and Jesus can still have my whole heart, right? I can make a mistake. And Jesus can still have my whole heart. I don't have to know everything. We're not talking about this perfect knowledge. We're not talking about perfect performance. We're not talking about a legalistic list of holiness. Like, this is what it looks like, and if you don't do it, you're not in. It's not what we're talking about. Paul is talking about what happens to believers when Jesus takes hold of us. Again, this is why grace isn't a thing. Grace is a person. We need more Jesus. This is what happens when Jesus takes hold of you. And if he has taken hold of you, your life will change. Like if you went down front and nothing changed, it was probably not a real experience, a real Jesus experience. Like if you prayed and gave your life to Jesus and you kept control of your life, you didn't really give, give your life to Jesus. When Jesus takes hold of you, when he unites you to himself in his death and resurrection, the normal Christian life is progressing transformation. Here's how this works. The question for me is whether the parts of my body today are given to sin or Jesus. That's the point in verses 12 through 14. Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies. Right? Don't let sin have a... Th- Everybody got mortal bodies. We're still dying. We know that. Don't let sin have authority there. You've been joined to the one who's defeated sin. He's died. He's free from sin. You belong to him. That means sin doesn't have authority over you. So don't let sin have authority it's not supposed to have. Do not take the parts of your bodies. That's what the the translation says. No longer present your members to sin. Like members is just like like the parts of your bodies. What does it look like to present my tongue and my vocal cords to sin? 
<laughs> what am I going to be tempted to say later this afternoon that would be submitting my voice to the authority of sin? And what would it look like in that moment to submit my very vocal cords to the authority of Jesus? And the next day. And the next day. What would it mean to submit my desires to the authority of Jesus? What would it mean to submit the way I entertain myself, the way I use my eyes and my ears, the things I watch and the things I listen to? Am I submitting my eyes and my ears, my sensory organs, the parts of my body? Am I submitting them to the dominion of sin or to the authority of Jesus? And the question is, right now, does Jesus reign in me, in my body? Now here's the thing, that doesn't mean everything is right and perfect from this point forward, because there are things that 50-year-old Matt is going to have to deal with that 41-year-old Matt doesn't know about yet. Like, there's some stuff way down deep, and Jesus doesn't have it yet, and he's going to have to get a hold of it, but that's coming later. I'm not worried about that right now. We just need to focus on what does Jesus have all of me today. But when those things do come up, will he have all of me then? I uh, used to have, <laughs> I say used to, as an adolescent, I'll put it this way, I had a really severe temper. Like, really severe. It's that redheaded Irish thing happening and just different sort of adolescent angst, maybe. Very impatient, lots of temper. And really, in college, asked Jesus to really do some work and heal that. And he did. Thanks be to God, he did. Then I got married. And I had to come to Jesus again and say, like, you gotta, like, you gotta heal it. You've got to help me be a patient man. And you've got to heal that. You've got to sanctify it. I want this piece of my life, I want my vocal cords to be yes to you. And he did. And then I had children. <laughs> and 30-year-old Matt had to deal with things 20-year-old Matt never knew were coming. The Spirit of God had to deal with things that I never knew were coming. And I fully expect that to happen for the rest of my life. This isn't sinless perfection. This isn't, well, I've been entirely sanctified, so I don't have to worry about sin anymore. No, this is, tomorrow will Jesus have my whole heart. The next day, will Jesus have my whole body? The next day, will Jesus have the members of my body? The next day, will Jesus have my eyes and my mouth and my hands and my desires? And the next day, and the next year, whatever shows up, whatever happens in the moment, does Jesus have my full yes? Because the normal Christian life is the transformed Christian life, and if he has my yes, then he will be transforming me so that his image is coming to completion and his love is overflowing.
So don't get to thinking you're going to just be perfect later. Your spouse or your children will help you realize that's not the case. Grandchildren, coworkers, any person in the world will help you realize you're not <laughs> a finished product yet. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus died to forgive wayward rebels not to leave us in our filth, but to cleanse us comprehensively, completely, fully, wholly, all the way through. And when I, by the grace of God, discovered that for the first time, and when I think about it again and again, and when I preach on it, which is every week, as I consider these things I feel more loved than ever because the Jesus who bled for me didn't bleed to leave me in my mess he bled to make me whole he didn't bleed so that I could keep doing the things that make me experience shame and guilt he didn't Bleed so that I could do the thing to just, just be stuck in the things that hurt people. He loved me and gave himself for me so that he could take me to himself and flood my bodily life with his perfect love. Perfect love? question is very simple. Do we want to be loved? Do you want to be loved? Jesus loves you. And his love goes far beyond his forgiveness. He loves you far, 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 far too much to just wash you and then leave you in the mud. He loves you far, far, far too much to forgive you and leave you to the things that bring guilt. He loves you far, far, far too much. And so His desire, His best, His purposes, His life, His death, His resurrection, his reigning glory are all brought to bear on us to bring us into wholeness. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? Wholeness is supposed to be normal. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.